This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Some survivors of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church are calling for a state-by-state investigation, essentially replicating what happened in Pennsylvania, where the attorney general investigated and a grand jury report outlined unthinkable abuse. Meanwhile, a high-ranking church official has called for the Pope to step down, saying he covered up abuse. On Tuesday, we heard from the Denver Archdiocese. Today, perspectives from SNAP, the survivor's network of those abused by priests. Jeb Barrett leads Denver's chapter, and Michael Carpino of Centennial is a member. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Thank you. What is your response to the letter from the Denver Archbishop calling for this independent lay investigation? Jeb? My first response is, I don't trust that the fox can guard the hen house because we've seen efforts like this many times before. An external and independent examination, such as the grand jury report, is the only way that we're going to get to the real facts underlying this endemic problem in our society. SNAP, in fact, has called for attorneys general in every state to conduct their own investigation. Is that a conversation you're having with Cynthia Kaufman? We do plan to request a chat with Cynthia Kaufman, the attorney general's office, to see what has to be done to bring about a grand jury investigation in the state of Colorado like other states are doing. What specifically would you want the attorney general to look into? Help us understand what you think the scope of that should be. I think the attorney general, any investigation needs to ask for the opening of personnel records where the Catholic Church has kept fastidious records of their clergy's conduct, their placements, and so forth, for what that reveals, because it is there. That is the first piece. But the goal should be to see that we eliminate criminal statute limitations for sexual crimes against minors, I would call it, and also that the victims have the ability to sue the diocese in a reasonable and timely manner. And then all of these confidentiality agreements that have been signed over the years need to be disclosed and tossed aside so that people can come forward and say, this is more evidence of cover-up. The Denver Archdiocese has said that 2002 was really a pivotal year for the church in dealing with uh, sexual abuse, and that since then— There have been no new acts that have come to light. Uh, What do you say to that? I would only guess that that is that they know of, that they're willing to talk about. The only way we're going to know for sure is if those personnel records are opened to an independent external authority for examination. The piece that I would add to this, it's not unusual for victims to wait decades before they come forward. So we do not know whether or not any victims are out there. So one of the things that I would ask for Cynthia Kaufman to do is to put up hotlines to ask for victims to come forward since those dates. We've known from the past that the church has lied to us about victims and that they've lied to society in general. That It's been a pivotal year. Um, Talk to me about this hotline. Why do you think that's an important Step Because they have to – victims need a very safe place to come to. For a lot of them, it's a very painful act to step forward because there's fear involved. There's um, denial involved that it happened. 
some fi- victims just do not want to address the problem. Um, it hurts too bad. To, do you uh, remember feeling that yourself? Yeah, Brian, from my standpoint, I went nearly 30 years before I came forward. And, and that's not unusual. Some people wait until their 80s till they come forward. What happened after 30 years? For me, the pivotal point was the article that broke in the Boston Globe with the reporters. That piece of it gave me a safe avenue. Um, Your abuse occurred uh, in New England. Yeah. And the, the next portion of the, the safe zone for me came about when the movie Spotlight came out. And that's when I really came out publicly because I dreamt about that movie being told. I wanted the truth to be told about what the Catholic Church has done. Well, apparently this priest molested kids in six different parishes over the last 30 years. And the attorney for the victims, Mr. Uh, Garabedian. Thanks. I mean, Mr. Garabedian says Cardinal Law found out about it 15 years ago and did nothing. Yeah, I think that attorney's a bit of a crank and the church dismissed the claim. He said, she said. Whether Mr. Garabedian is a crank or not, he says he has documents that prove the Cardinal knew. Uh, As I understand it, those documents are under seal. Okay, but the fact remains a Boston priest abused 80 kids. We have a lawyer who says he can prove law knew about it, and we've written all of uh, two stories in the last six months. This strikes me as an essential story to a local paper. I think at the very least, uh, we have to go through those documents. And with the Boston Globe report, I thought I was one of a few victims. And there's been thousands in the United States that have been sexually assaulted by priests. And when you look at it globally, it's even more than that. Jeb, did you have a similar experience? How how long did it take for you to speak up? I was 63 before I talked to anybody about my abuse and went to my first SNAP meeting, heard other stories, and it began to bring up stories that I had hidden behind layers and layers of denial and fear and trauma myself. And it was from that that I began to to recover, I guess. And that's like 15 years ago. I'm much more comfortable talking today about what happened, the, the grooming, the use of alcohol, the fact that I was taught to never say no to an adult. So when somebody asked me to do something or did something to me, I was a, a very vulnerable victim and uh, went along with it and drank myself almost to death over those experiences of betrayal. We spoke to the archdiocese, and they've they've mentioned several important changes. Uh, One is much better screening of potential priests, sort of weeding this out from the beginning, Uh, and also just a zero-tolerance policy that says if there is a credible allegation that will be immediately told to law enforcement and it will be immediately investigated and that priest will be at least temporarily removed from that church. Do you take some comfort in those types of changes? I certainly do. That gives me great hope that they are doing what they're willing to do to stop the abuse where they see it right now. But I still have the concern about those they don't know about or have been released from the priesthood and are out in the community now, hidden from the public, because there was never any sort of report of their their crimes. Michael? Yeah, my my view is a little bit different than Jeb's. Um, 
Last year, uh, it was in June timeframe, there was a priest that was ordained in New Jersey. He was 30 days into his ordainment, and he has sexually assaulted a female, 13-year-old girl. So when, when I hear that they have processes in place to prevent this from happening, the, the processes aren't working if there's still individuals that are becoming priests that are abusing kids. You talked about zero tolerance, if I can, Ryan. Sure. Let's talk about Cardinal McCarrick. The Catholic Church, from what I've read, has known about McCarrick's issues of abusing kids going back into the 80s. But this is really, by the way, the case that has brought into question the future of the Pope, just to be clear. And so McCarrick was inside the church for another 30 plus years, almost 40 years, when the church knew about um, he had abused children. And the only way they implemented the zero tolerance when it became public knowledge public knowledge because the media exposed it, not because the Catholic Church came forward and said that McCarrick was an abuser. It was because an individual came forward, the press picked up on it, and they ran with it. So there, there is cases out there that, and I believe, still within the Catholic Church, however you want to define that, in the United States or worldwide, there is individuals that have abused kids that are still working for the Catholic Church. And I, I want to ask this question for folks listening in Colorado. Does SNAP have any evidence that there are people working for the Catholic Church right now in this state who are threats? No specific evidence. Okay. And that is probably because people are still hesitant to come forward in this climate. What did this mean for your faith? Do you still identify as Catholic, by the I, way? Um, I do not. Absolutely not. No. Um, to back up, when I was an altar boy at the time that I was abused, and during that time frame prior to my abuse, I actually thought about becoming a priest, but I have nothing to do with the Catholic Church today. How about you, Chip? I've separated myself from the Catholic Church, except when I am employed as a musician, and that is just to do concerts. Uh, I have no faith in the credibility of the Catholic hierarchy. And that is something I really mean to want to just make a distinction about. I still believe that the church is really the people. And I I have a sadness for the people who are still feeling shame and guilt for what the hierarchy has done to smear the name of Catholicism, the the religion, and so forth. You make a distinction between the power and the people. people. I love those people. I care for those people. I love the music. We also heard from the Denver Archdiocese that to extend statute of limitations, uh, so far as their argument was made to us, uh, that that would lead to injustice because you have people's poor memories, you have perhaps the deaths of witnesses. What, what do you say to them? I'd say that reveals their position that they're more interested in, in protecting hidden predators than they are in protecting children. The question that needs to be asked of the, of lawmakers as well as the hierarchy are, is, are you more interested in protecting children and vulnerable adults or in protecting predators, sexual predators, not just in the church, but across the culture? What do you want to see happen from here? And let me ask that under the broader context of the future of this pope. I, I don't. I don't. The, the Pope has his own issues um, that he's, he has to deal with at this point. Today, what I want 
I would love to see happen. It's not within the Catholic Church. I would like to see every attorney general in this nation do an investigation of the Catholic Church. I would like to see the Department of Justice do an investigation because there was federal laws violated here too. And everybody will know the truth is what I'm looking for, the truth of what went on, what transpired, so that people can make their own judgment, not the judgment that may be tainted by individuals, but the truth of the matter of what actually went on in the cover-up. I define it that they were wolves in sheep's clothing and what they'd done. Um, there's a lot of cover-up associated with the pedophiles that abuse children, and the individuals that covered up need to be exposed, and that is why they didn't want the grand jury to put the report out in Pennsylvania, because individuals were identified that grossly covered up the, the assaults and the crimes that were committed. Jeb, what do you want in the long term? I'd like to see the, the names of all those who have been convicted and possibly even those for this credible allegations on sexual offender registries. Of course, only those convicted could appear there. Mm. But I think it's most important for the public to know just who should not be trusted. From whom should they protect their children? What would that look like practically? So let's say that there was an allegation against a priest today. Mm -hmm. And now the church says it will be investigated thoroughly. Would you like to see some sort of centralized database so that if there were multiple accusations, you could start to put a picture together? Like, practically, what do you think that would look like? Well, I can only say what I've seen happen in some dioceses, and that is where there have been the credible allegations. They, first of all, publish the names of the the clergy, uh, including deacons, on their websites and also nuns on their websites for people to see where they have served so that someone say, oh, yes, he was in my parish. But I think, again, the the government needs to provide such a listing for people to be made aware. The other thing that has happened to many of them is they promised a visit or committed to a visit to the parishes where there were offending priests to talk with them about it and encourage others to come forward. I think that's important. So there can be a part of the healing process for the victims because we need to be see more attention given to the, the work the victims need in order to survive, not so much on what the church is doing, but what are the victims getting? Are they getting any kind of reparation? Are they getting any kind of counseling? Are they getting support in overcoming the trauma? Does this moment in time feel different from from past pivotal moments in this? For me, absolutely. There's been a change that has occurred with the report that came out of Pennsylvania, and, and I, I hope the rest of the states will line up. Um, it, it will expose the truth, and that's, you know, Brian, that will be closure for me. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us here. I really appreciate that. Jeb Barrett leads the Denver chapter of SNAP, the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. Michael Carpino of Centennial is a member of that group. We asked the Colorado Attorney General's Office about Carpino's idea of starting a hotline to report abuse. Cynthia Kaufman's office told us it's had initial conversations with SNAP and is gathering information about the scope of the issue in Colorado as it works on options to help victims. You can hear the church's perspective from yesterday at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters. 
In the latest Longmire mystery, Sheriff Walt Longmire is out of his elements. The rugged Wyoming lawman is in the Chihuahua Desert of northern Mexico, and he's not on vacation. Author Craig Johnson, one of the most successful and prolific Western writers out there, is in our studio to talk about his latest book and about the end of the Longmire TV series. Welcome back to the show, Craig. Thanks, Ryan. Great to be here. Since we last spoke, Netflix ended Longmire. It ran for a total of six seasons. Uh, How about we hear a clip from the finale? Sure. Okay. Sheriff Longmire and his partner Vic are about to go on a bust, and once again they face the possibility of death. Uh, You'll hear actor Robert Taylor's low voice and brooding pauses, (laughs) and his partner Victoria Vic Moretti, played by Katie Sackhoff. How many times are we going to have the Is This It conversation? I didn't realize we were even having a conversation. I am. I am, okay? I feel like I am always having to say goodbye to you. Just in case. Goodbye is always implied. This line of work. I guess I just usually put it out of my mind. Maybe I shouldn't do that anymore. Gosh, the pauses in that are as large as the spaces in Wyoming. (laughs) They do let the characters breathe. It was really kind of nice. That was one of the things that happened, though, whenever we made the leap from, uh, you know, basic cable over to Netflix. It was kind of nice like that because, you know, they really didn't care, you know, about the length of of the episodes. You know, they were fine, you know, with them going well over an hour. And before that, you know, we were kind of trapped in that 42-minute teleplay construction, you know, that allowed for 18 minutes of commercials. So it really was kind of nice. Right. The show was born on on cable and then migrated to Netflix. Do you do you miss the show? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I do. Like that. I mean, you know, the 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 you know, the actors, the performers and everybody that's involved, the crew and everybody all over 6 years they've kind of become family to a certain extent, you know, but uh, we did just finish up Longmire days up in Buffalo, Wyoming where we have the the cast and some of the crew come up and uh, along with about 15,000 of their closest friends okay. into the little town of Buffalo <laughs> like that. And so I did see them most recently and, and, and as far as I know, like at Robert Taylor is, you know, happy to, to continue doing Longmire days even if they have to roll him out there in a wheelchair. <laughs> this proves I think though that art can boost an economy, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, here here is this event born out of Oh, absolutely. Out of these books and the TV series, was it the right time for the TV series to end? Oh, I think that, you know, it may not be completely over. Um, you know, right now, like that, what we're facing is, is there's a little bit of a corporate situation, you know, between Warner Brothers and Netflix about, you know, foreign rights um, and expansion, you know, and, and then ownership of the t- TV show, which is the same problem that we ran into with the cable channel that owned it, you know, that was running it before like that. And so Warner Brothers wants to keep control, but then, you know, these, these, these other broadcasters, they want to kind of have a chunk of it. You know, and so we'll see what happens. Huh. You know. It may not be uh, written off into the sunset, though. You never can tell. Okay. Like, what we've heard is like rumors of like TV movies and that type of thing. So we'll see what happens. Okay. <laughs> Onward and upward, your latest mystery is called Depth of Winter. 
which might imply that things are cold. But in fact, it's sweltering in most of your book. Tell us why Sheriff Longmire is in the Mexican desert, far from Wyoming. About five books ago in The Serpent's Tooth, there was a character um, that was introduced by the name of Tomas Bedart. And um, he is kind of a, a bad guy like that. He's involved with the narco culture down in Mexico. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, terrorist activities and that type of thing. And so, you know, he and Walt kind of go head to head in Absaroka County, you know, because he, he makes a mistake of taking Walt on, you know, in his resources, you know, with his uh, backup and, you know, all of that. And, and you know, makes a mistake and barely makes it out of Absaroka County alive. Like, And so he kind of plots his revenge and kind of wreaks some revenge on Walt in the last five books. And it finally comes to a head in Depth of Winter. Finally, we had this face-off between Walt Longmire and Tomas Bedard. Can we say what happens or we're leaving that? We can we can go into that a little bit. Actually, what happens is, is uh, Tomas Bedard actually, um, he kidnaps uh, Katie, Walt's daughter, like that, and takes her um, into Mexico, um, decides that maybe a different battleground might be uh, serve him better, like that. So he takes her into Mexico and Walt is uh, kind of a man alone, like that the, the American government doesn't want him going down there. The Mexican government doesn't want him going down there. And so he kind of has to be in a, a man alone against an army. Craig Johnson, you don't write these books in a vacuum, and Mexico is in the headlines these days, certainly with trade, uh, the relationship between the U.S. and Mexico these days, given the administration. Did you have some thought about that as you wrote about Mexico, that that's sort of a fraught relationship at the moment? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've got the Diaz quote in the beginning like that about, you know, how, you know, poor Mexico, you know, so far from God, so close to the United States. Again, so there's a lot of aspects you, know, that you want to take into consideration. I mean, you, when you write these type of books, I think the best thing you can do is write them in layers, you know, so that people can really enjoy the book for a number of different reasons. And, you know, this one obviously has a lot to say, you know, about the relationship between America, you know, and Mexico and, you know, also, you know, when you have these type of characters, these iconic uh, type of characters, it's it's something when they're in their you know own element. It's yeah. another thing when you take them out of it and make them do something different. There is a lot uh, about the border patrol, mm-hmm. for instance, and about what it means to cross the border, mm-hmm. how easily you can do that or not. How do you write about Mexico accurately, especially when you're so familiar with Wyoming? You know, you live there. Mm -hmm. You have uh, also imagined Absaroka County in the previous books for for years now. Mm And then you, you set things in this new place. Well, I'm a big one for primary research. I mean, you can do, you know, like all of the research on the Internet. You know, you can you know, watch the documentaries like that. You can read. You can do all of the things that you need to to gather as much information to garner the type of story that you're wanting to write. But it's never going to be quite as good as going like that. And so I've been in Mexico a number of times, you know, in my life like that. And here recently, especially in the Juarez area, like that, the city's cleaned up a lot. But it still has, you know, some rough edges. Um, and there are actually people that you can go down to El Paso. So like that and hire like that and they will take you across if you want to go into some of the areas that may be a little bit more sketchy. And uh, it was funny because I was over there with uh, one of these guys and they tell you what to how to dress and what to do, look at and what to do in certain situations. You know, and they're fluent in Spanish and in the culture and everything. And uh, I'd been over there for a couple hours like that. You know, and we're south of Juarez and uh, you know, if you, you know, a few, few interesting things had happened like that. And he finally turns and looks at me and he says, are you a cop? And I said, no, no, I'm not. Look at and he says, well, you're not in the drug trade, are you? And I said, no, I'm definitely not. <laughs> 
And then he <laughs> As goes, if you'd answer <laughs> yes if you were. Exactly. <laughs> and then he said, well, what do you do? Like, and I said, well, I'm a writer. And he goes, well, what do you write? Like, and I said, well, I, I've got a series of books about a Wyoming sheriff. Um, and he goes, Longmire? And I said, well, <laughs> um, yeah, I like that. And he goes, don't tell anybody that. He said, the, the second biggest money-making operation going on in Juarez these days is kidnapping. And oh. so don't let anyone know that you write those books. <laughs> yes, because people would likely pay a, a handsome ransom. Yeah, and I don't know. You. I'm not so sure my wife would pay. I don't <laughs> <Okay>. know. If <laughs> that, you know. <laughs> You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm joined once again by uh, the Western author Craig Johnson, author of the Longmire Mysteries. His new one is called Depth of Winter. And and like you, uh, Sheriff Longmire sort of sticks out in Mexico. <laughs> Uh, I think long, he's very tall, right? Isn't he, he six, is. six two or six three? Something he's like six that? five. He was six five. Okay. Uh, how, how do you get him across the border discreetly into these, you know, places outside, you know, where tourists go? Well, it really wasn't so much of a difficulty in getting him into Mexico, and even sometimes getting him out of Mexico. Like at the difficulty, of course, was is that you know Walt kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah. He's like six foot five. He weighs about you know two hundred and fifty five, two hundred sixty pounds. Like he was, you know, he was a he was an offensive tackle for USC. Like he was a marine investigator. So in Mexico, he kind of stands out like that. And um, so the difficulty was trying to find a reason why he would be there, and no one would know exactly who he was. And um, one of his compadres. Padres, uh, the seer, like a thalidomide um, uh, individual who has lost his legs, is a hunchback and has, si- has no sight. Um, comes and yet up, it's called the seer. Yeah, it's called the for seer his, for his vision because he has an ability, like it, to see things perhaps that other people don't. Like it, and uh, he comes up with a pretty unique idea on how to cover Walt uh, to an extent. Like it, and I guess I can give it away. Like it, I don't think it'll tear the book up too badly. Like it, but he passes him off as Bob Lilly, the the, uh, the defensive end for the Dallas Cowboys. Like. <laughs> So Walt has to pretend um, that he's a Dallas cowboy, like for a certain portion of the book. They get around Mexico to rescue Sheriff Longmire's daughter, Katie, from some drug lords. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get around in a vehicle that's not exactly low profile either. No, it's it, it, not. It, I think it might stick out more than the sheriff. It, <laughs> Will you read this description for us? I just loved it. I'll be happy to. Like, it, It's one of those situations, of course, like that, which we've seen in movies and we've seen um, in books like at a, a lot of times, you know, where, um, you know, these Americans gather together, you know, a group of individuals like to head across the border like that. And I don't think that there's ever been a more misbegotten group of individuals assembled as there are in Depth of Winter. A motley crew. A motley crew is a perfect. on this on this journey. <laughs> perfect description. This is from Chapter 1. We'd reached the curb when a large, honest-to-God, pink 1959 Cadillac convertible pulled into view, sliding up to the front of us like a pulsating puddle of Pepto-Bismol oozing <laughs> to a stop. A young man with long hair and amazingly thick Coke bottle glasses got out and came around, opened the door, and saluted me. Hola, Capitan. The seer gestured towards the young man, my nephew, Alonzo, our driver. I gave him my hand, while Longmire... I love the idea of a pink Cadillac <laughs> as oozing like Pepto-Bismol. I'll never see a pink car the same way. That's all I could ever think of. Like that, whenever I looked at the colors of those things, was like it looks like a bottle of Pepto-Bismol. <laughs> 
any book that involves a drug gang is going to get violent. Mm-hmm. But I think I lost count of how many times Sheriff Longmire is knocked unconscious in this book. You know, it's a rough road to hoe like that. But it's one of those things where I don't think the book is overtly violent. But I mean, it is in a violent situation and a violent, violent culture like that. And, um, you know, that's one of the big issues for Walt, I think, throughout the book is to try and hold on, you know, to his humanity, you know, to try and like not uh, surrender himself, you know, to this violence and this madness. I mean, you know, for me, one of the my favorite parts in the book, like that is the part where he's sitting by behind the abandoned mission with Bianca and uh, they're having a cup of coffee and he's got a book sitting in front of him and it's a an autobiography or not an autobiography but rather a biography of uh, Ambrose Bierce and she looks at him and she says what's the book about and he's telling her and she looks at him and she says do you realize that you're crying and he wipes the tear away from his eye and looks at her and says this is what I miss normalcy you know something that you know is away from all of this insanity and all this violence this is this is what I miss Thanks for being with us. My pleasure, Ryan. Western author Craig Johnson writes The Longmire Mysteries. He lives in Ucross, Wyoming, and he'll give a talk and sign books tonight at the Lone Tree Arts Center. More people died from drug overdoses in Colorado last year than any year in state history. Most of those deaths were in Metro Denver, and it's probably no surprise that opioid painkillers took the biggest toll. This fall, a measure on the ballot in Denver would raise taxes to pay for mental health services and addiction treatment. CPR health reporter John Daly says supporters call it a potential game changer. Michelle Baca is 34, a mother of four. For years, she's battled addiction to heroin and meth. She's made multiple attempts at recovery, but recently had a relapse. Baca says it's been... Hell. A nightmare. Yeah. I interviewed Baca and her fiancé, Eric Bowers, in an Arvada park, where we sought shelter from a thunderstorm in their car. Bowers says they tried to get Baca into more than a dozen detox and residential facilities with no luck. Everybody's advice to me was don't die or don't overdose in the meantime, and I did OD in the meantime. When I found her, she was extremely high, uh, out of her right mind. She was in a narcotic-induced psychosis. It was the latest challenge in a life that's included brain cancer, drug busts, jail, and addiction. Baca's only insurance is Medicaid, and the couple thinks that's why she was put on a waiting list for treatment that could be months long. If you have Medicaid, it's a wait list. You don't got four months when you're a heroin addict or you're a meth addict. You don't have four months, especially if you're living on the streets. I was sleeping in stairwells, in parks, you know, and you don't got four months. Coloradans like Baca face a major shortage of treatment options. That reality coincides with a skyrocketing need from a wave of mental health-related problems like the opioid crisis, suicide, and school violence. But communities are starting to respond. A group called Caring for Denver has turned in signatures for a ballot measure. If the amazing team would grab some boxes, let's uh, head on into Denver elections and make this happen. What do you think? The initiative would raise the city's sales and use tax to fund mental health services, suicide prevention, drug addiction prevention, treatment, and recovery services. Leading the charge, Democratic state lawmaker Leslie Harrod whose sister has struggled with addiction. So we know how hard it is to find mental health and addiction resources, especially when you need it, but also before you think you do. The Denver tax increase would be one quarter of one percent, or 25 cents, on a $100 purchase. It would raise $45 million a year. 
It could share a crowded ballot with proposals that raise money for things like parks, college scholarships, and healthy food programs. But Herod says she's confident it can pass. When we did conduct an initial poll and asked Denverites, you know, do you care about this issue? Is this something you would be willing to fund? 79% said yes. So this issue is uniquely different because it impacts so many of us. In Denver, heroin deaths are up 1,000% since 2002. The city sees three opioid overdoses a day. Carl Clark is CEO of the Mental Health Center of Denver. He says one in five Americans struggle with a mental health issue. So the people in Denver are saying, let's do something right now. And $45 million uh, infused into what we're doing right now, that is a game changer. That will make a significant difference for people. Supporters of the campaign want people who've struggled with mental health and addiction to post their own stories on its website. I never got arrested. I was never in trouble, you know, any kind of way. Um, But I always like to say yet. Melanie Stritch is a 34-year-old mother and says she's a grateful alcoholic, grateful because she got sober at a younger age. She hopes people who tell their stories will earn respect and understanding. I think that everybody coming now and speaking out is going to stop the stigma. I'm here to stop the stigma. I think that it's wonderful that Denver is trying to improve uh, mental health and substance abuse treatment programs. That's Dr. Jeff Bornstein. He leads the New York-based Brain and Behavior Research Foundation and hosts a public TV series called Healthy Minds. He says for years, mental health programs and research have been underfunded. Bornstein says he's unaware of a similar effort in any other big U.S. city. Having a pass in Denver certainly would serve as a model for other cities, for states, communities to do this as well, because the need is across the country. The need is felt in Colorado with one of the nation's highest suicide rates, and Larimer County has one of Colorado's highest numbers. Eighty-three people took their lives in 2016. That year, the county asked voters to raise taxes to fund mental health services. Lori Stolen, the Behavioral Health Project Director, says residents seem to back it. You know, we've talked about it in a kind of a compassionate care sort of message in that this is the right thing to do and this is what's right for our community and it's, it's a big need. But voters said no. So this fall, Larimer County residents will vote on a new proposal to raise about the same amount, $15 million a year, for a new treatment and detox facility and other services. However, Stolen says this time they're offering more detail to voters about the costs and the trade-offs. Yes, providing treatment costs, but not providing treatment costs a lot more. So we've switched the message up to more of a, here's the numbers, here's where your money would be going, and also, by the way, it's the right thing to do. Stolen says people with untreated mental health problems end up in emergency rooms and jails. Mental illness can be chronic and needs long-term care. But it isn't always covered by public insurance programs like Medicaid and Medicare. So Stolen says the costs of untreated mental illness just keep piling up. If we were to tell somebody that has cancer that you can only have three chemo treatments and then the rest is on your on your own, find the funding for it. I think we, you know, our community would be in a pretty big uproar. But for some reason, we don't quite have that same parity in the behavioral health world yet. Colorado's behavioral health world got a jolt this year when its largest treatment provider, Arapaho House, closed its doors. Denise Vincioni directs a treatment clinic in Denver. She says the move showed the precarious financial outlook facilities face, 
Plus, she says the mental health system is fragmented and patients can slip through the cracks. Absolutely. You know, and it happens all the time, all the time. Arapahoe House accepted Medicaid insurance for those with low incomes. Vincioni says fresh funds could provide a big boost for critical programs that are costly to run. So inpatient, residential, those longer-term stays are very scarce and hard to get into. As Eric Bowers and Michelle Baca sit out the storm in their car waiting for the rain to pass, Bowers talks about his addiction to heroin and meth. He's now in recovery and volunteering with the Salvation Army, where he met Baca. Bowers says he's encouraged by the campaign. It'll be life-changing. Um, it'll give people like myself, when we're ready for help, it'll give us that option to get help. Baca's addiction lost her the custody of her children. She hopes to get into recovery and reunite with them. So for her and others struggling with addiction, new public resources could be a lifeline. Because there's so many people out there struggling with addictions that want help that can't get it because we don't have that kind of money. We're addicts. The majority of us are homeless, you know, and just living, you know, day by day, like trying to make it. So it seems almost impossible for somebody who actually wants treatment to be able to actually get it. The city's election division found the campaign submitted enough valid signatures for the measure to appear on the November 6th ballot. I'm John Daly, CPR News. So just how great is the need and just how big a deal would it be if this new $45 million annually is realized? That is, if Denver voters pass the Caring for Denver ballot measure. Ben Miller is going to help us put this into context. He's the chief strategy officer with Wellbeing Trust, a national health foundation. He's also a board member of Mental Health Colorado, which backs this proposal. And I should say that so far there appears to be no formal opposition to the measure. Hi, Ben. Hi, Ryan. How serious is the need for more mental health funding in Denver? Well, the need to address mental health in general is pretty serious. Somewhere in our journey to redesign healthcare, we forgot about mental health. And so what you see now, what you hear from those stories that we just listened to, is that people are really trying hard to find access to care. And the reasons that it's so hard is that we've got a fragmented system that has disproportionately ignored mental health. We heard in John's piece, for instance, how difficult it is to get into a facility, a treatment facility, and stay there for any amount of time that one might need to recover, for instance. It's like a lottery. I mean, literally, you don't know if you're going to win, if you're going to lose. And so what you do when you're in the midst of this crisis is you do the thing that you know how to do, which is simply to ask other people, how do I get care? One of the things that is surprising when you actually get out there and talk to folks is that most people don't know how to get access to care. They don't know who to talk to. They don't know where to go. They don't know which direction to even look to find access to care. Some of that is a financing issue, but a lot of that is just how we've prioritized mental health in our communities. Okay, some of that is a financing issue, Mm -hmm. you say, and yet financing is a key part of this ballot measure. So would it also bring more understanding to whatever system it creates? I would hope so. I mean, there's a historical precedence here. We can go back to 1963 and look at the first piece of federal legislation and how we created community mental health centers to understand how we began to have a separate track for mental health in this country. So what you see at that time, you know, 40 plus years ago, is this desire to do something about mental health. Unfortunately, the dollars that were spent to support mental health didn't follow people back into the community. And so since 1963, what we've been trying to do is to catch up. 
but we've grown two systems. We've got a mental health system and we've got a medical system. They don't often talk to each other. They sure don't often integrate. And so one of the things we're going to have to do is to figure out how we bring those two things together. Okay, but you don't have that laid out ahead of floating this to voters? I think that you do, and I think there is a vision of what this looks like. But because we've inherited a system that is somewhat fractured, right now what we're trying to do is to meet people where they are. There's a lot of folks that have mental health, as you heard from John's piece, that need care today. So how do you redesign the system to get to where you want to go while taking care of the people that need care today? And I guess I go back to the fundamental question. Mm -hmm. If I vote yes on this... Am I both sending funds and helping repair the system? I would hope so. So you would a, hope so. Yes, okay, there's an that obvious need. Inspire a lot of confidence. Well, there's an obvious need, Ryan, to redesign the system so that mental health is a priority across all sectors. There's also this need to put more resources behind mental health because, as I said, it has historically been ignored. So bringing more resources to the table to support mental health, whether that's through delivery, through education, that is a good thing, and that will actually help Coloradans tomorrow. How would lives change because of this? Take me down to to individual lives. Well, one of the things that we would hope to see happen almost immediately is that people are more aware of where to get access to care. Right now, a lot of Coloradans don't know where to go to get access to care. They also don't even know if they can afford what they're about to receive when they finally do get access to care. Does this help them pay for that? I would hope that in some ways, however the dollars are used and leveraged, that it does go into supporting more affordable treatment options. Yes. So making those options cheaper, uh, a sliding scale of some kind for people, what? Well, this is a longer discussion, but it's an important question because when we spend 18% of our GDP on healthcare, what percentage of that do you think goes towards mental health? Very little. And so any dollar that we can use to put towards mental health is a good thing. But there's a lot of resources out there already that we know are available for healthcare. How do we begin to invest and prioritize some of those resources towards mental health? You started our conversation by saying that this is an issue in general. So Mm -hmm. clearly beyond Metro Denver and beyond Colorado. And what we heard in John Daly's piece is that Denver is going to try to raise money for this. Larimer County, meanwhile, is trying to do the same thing. Will you end up with a patchwork? In other words, uh, you're supported if you live in Denver, but you're out of luck if you're in Lakewood. You're good in Larimer County, but in Weld County, you know, you're, you're swimming upstream. Well, that's one way to look at it. Or it could be a precedent that other counties begin to adopt. So if it does pass in Denver or Larimer, what happens if you're the next county that wants to apply or try and use the same technique to get more resources for mental health? It actually could be a good precedent. But I think it tells an important story. If the voters do come forward and say that they support this, think about the message that sends for mental health. It's not just something that we're going to set aside. It's something that we as voters, we're going to invest in ourselves. There's something concrete about this you're saying, but there's also something symbolic, I think I hear you say. Extremely symbolic. Your group, Wellbeing Trust, recently put out a report along with the Trust for America's Health called Pain in the Nation, and it projects what things might look like if the country doesn't get a better handle on mental health. What what would that future look like? Well, it's a bleak one, Ryan. And unfortunately, when we looked at data from 1995 to 2015, we found that 1 million folks in the United States died to drug, alcohol, or suicide. When we project those data forward, we expect that we would see a 100% increase. So 2 million lives lost to drug, alcohol, and suicide in this nation. Those are trends that we can actually stop. 
There are things that we can do today by paying better attention to mental health and addiction, by focusing on community factors that would actually help us stop those trends from looking as bad as they currently do. Community factors. Mm -hmm. Say more about that. Well, we know that a lot of things that give rise to optimal health and well-being are community conditions. Where you live, access to healthy foods and nutrition, your transportation system, your built environment. Those are things that when we're having discussions around healthcare, we sometimes don't always integrate or bring along. Are those envisioned by this ballot measure? Well, I think that anybody that is looking to address mental health comprehensively is going to pay attention to things like community conditions. So whether or not it's envisioned or not, I think we're going to have to pay attention to it. Now, you talk about, in addition to suicide, drug and alcohol abuse. And this is so thoroughly linked to mental health because it's often that people self-medicate. They use drugs. They use alcohol in a way as an ineffective treatment to mental illness, perhaps. That's right. Well, in the report, we call it pain in the nation for a reason, is that pain is really about pain that we feel emotionally, but it's also that we could feel physical pain. And so a lot of times people will turn to drugs and alcohol to really cope or to manage pain that they're feeling themselves inside. And so how do we address the mental health? And we talk about this in the report. We actually highlight 60 evidence-based practices and policies that communities can use to address this epidemic. All right. We'll post that later today to CPR.org if you'd like to read more. I guess just really briefly, doesn't rural Colorado actually really need this? We're focused on on urban Colorado here. I think everywhere needs this, but rural populations are disproportionately impacted by some of these issues. Ben, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Ben Miller is with Wellbeing Trust. He's also a board member of Mental Health Colorado, which backs the Caring for Denver ballot measure. Right now, there appears to be no organized opposition. This isn't the only tax voters in Denver will be asked to approve this year. There's also a measure to increase the sales tax to provide food and food education, especially to needy kids. So just a small picture of a more complicated election, certainly, in Colorado this year. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A classified ad in the Pueblo Chieftain turned some heads recently. It was for a rug adorned with symbols that look like Nazi swastikas. CPR News fellow Haley Sanchez was one of the people surprised by that ad, so she looked into it. Leonard Brown is the man who posted that ad. He's an art collector. He's been buying, selling, and trading Southwestern works for decades. This is exceptional beaver. This is uh, called coral, red coral, turquoise I've got left, cowboy stuff, oak spurs, chaps, bullwhips. People know me. I've been doing this. At one point, Brown had to reinforce his cabinets because they were so weighed down with antiques. And I'm going to sell that one. I've got him at But as I walked inside his home, he pointed out holes on his walls where paintings and rugs once hung. Brown is moving out of state, so he's selling parts of his collection. And there's one piece in particular that I'm here to see. This is really a beautiful rug here. It's tan-colored, with half a dozen bright red symbols down the center and more on the sides. These symbols look just like swastikas. The rug is Navajo made, and it's more than 100 years old. But it's in pristine condition, and it's clear Brown is really proud of it. I must have had, in my all my years, I maybe have had 200 rugs. Every size, shape, color. This one, I loved. When I first saw Brown's ad in the paper for the rug, I thought, who would make a rug with swastikas all over it? Other people have had that question, too. 
Brown says he's taken phone calls from people who ask about the rug's design. And what he tells them is that this symbol isn't a swastika at all. The Navajo call it the whirling log. Edison Eskeets is a trader at the Hubble Trading Post on the Navajo Nation, and he says the symbol is sacred to the tribe. It came from the environment. It represents the constellation, the moon, the sun, the equinox. Uh, It's down to the earth, the four directions. Uh, the rotation of Mother Earth, and yeah, it's all of that. He says the Navajo use the whirling log in ceremonies today. The sign also represents the tribe's four sacred mountains, which include Blanca Peak and Mount Hesperus in southern Colorado. Eskeet says the U.S. government asked the Navajo to hold off on using the symbol during World War II. So for an unknown amount of time, metalsmiths, weavers, and other artists stopped using it in their work. That led to a misconception that items with the whirling log are no longer made at all. But Eskeet says the symbol never really went away entirely. Yeah, it's used. I have rugs here that are brand new with those symbols. He says it's critical that people understand what this mark means to the Navajo. That way, he doesn't have people running for the hills when they see it at the trading post. And Eskeet points out that the symbol is also used in a number of other cultures, including many in East Asia. you got to know the history of our mankind. It's critical. People might see it differently. It's just, you know... I think it's just misunderstood. Back in Pueblo, Leonard Brown, the antique collector, still hasn't sold his whirling log rug. And when I called him back to check, he says he's thought a lot about who he's willing to sell it to. He wants to make sure they understand the symbol. Well, I'm going to cherish it. I'll make sure of that. Hmm. I don't want to see it advertised in the paper in, in my lifetime. But he's had some second thoughts about selling it at all. Instead, he might put it up on a wall at his new home in Texas. I'm Haley Sanchez, CPR News. Finally today, a call for your questions about gardening. As we head into fall, what do you want to know about tending to your plants? Send your questions attached to a pumpkin spice latte to news at CPR.org. That's news at CPR.org. Or tweet at Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.